Nobody is obliged to believe either in the future of history or in the future of society. It is possible that scarcely any other matter, however, upon which our thoughts and feelings have changed so little since the very earliest times, except that it still has not been established whether it is the novel that prevents man from forgetting himself or the impossibility of forgetfulness that makes him write novels. I'm Travis Holland, and this is Footnotes to a Novel. My guest today is the novelist and short story writer Peter Ho Davies. Peter is the critically acclaimed author of The Welsh Girl, The Ugliest House in the World, Equal Love, and most recently, The Fortunes. He was chosen by Grant as one of the best young British novelists in 2003, has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts, and has even been long listed for the Booker Prize. He teaches at the MFA program in creative writing at the University of Michigan. And you can find more about him online at www.peterhodavies.com backslash author. And now, without further ado, Peter Ho Davies. So Peter, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to talk to me today. Um, I thought that we might maybe look back over the sort of course of uh, not just your last book, The Fortunes, but look back through The Welsh Girl and even your short stories, some of your collections. And it seems that throughout your career, you've always been willing to set your stories and novels in the past, in the time sort of outside of our own. Uh, And one could even say that you were at times uh, a writer of historical fiction. But it's a... It's a term I always hesitate to use, historical fiction. So, first thing, what do you think of that term, historical fiction? You know, I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable with it these days, I have to say. Um, but I do think there's a kind of taint associated with it that makes people think of, um, you know, bodice rippers, I think, on the yes. one hand. So it feels like a genre space. Um, and I think, uh, you know, even around the time The Welsh Girl was coming out, uh, when I was thinking about this quite a lot, I would remember reading, you know, journalistic articles where people would be complaining about contemporary novelists writing of the past um, when the present was so urgent. Uh, this was, you know, back in um, uh, the mid-noughts, I guess. Um, you know, this was the wake of 9-11, you know, foreign wars were heating up, all these kind of things were going on. But of course, our present moment now is also equally urgent, I think, in somewhat different ways, but really charged. Um, so there's a, a kind of notion that writers who write of the past are somehow either spurning an opportunity to write of the present, but maybe even turning away from the urgency of the present, I think, in some ways as well. Uh, but I, I mostly reject that. I, I think... Um, you know, very much in the writing of the Welsh Girl, for instance, which is a you know a book about wartime, about how we uh, impart, how we treat prisoners of war, um, about patriotism and nationalism. That's a narrative that felt as though, even as I wrote it, current events were informing it. You know, the you know you start off writing a book about prisoners of war, and then we're getting into spaces where we're thinking about the American treatment of prisoners at Guantanamo, um, the Abu Ghraib, uh, you know, outrages. Um, all of those things. Felt incredibly present to me. And so I have a, a sense that historical novelists tend to choose our material um, not as an escape from the present, but as a, as a way both consciously or even unconsciously um, to approach the present. I think. Yeah. And, and you say, you, you, you talk about your reluctance to sort of take on that label. It, it's interesting you say that because it's a label that I myself reluctantly accepted, even in the when I was writing the archivist story, I, at, at a certain point, I thought, oh, I'm writing a historical novel. You would think that would have occurred to me long before I began to write, but it was sort of something that uh, it occurred to me and that I had some misgivings about as well for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. Um, you also talked just now about how the present informs the past. 
or we observe the past from the present. Is there a risk, though, of the present kind of, inf- not infecting, but kind of coloring mm-hmm. our understanding of the past when one is uh, writing about it? Oh, I think so. I mean, there's a, you know, so we, we might describe the present as informing the way we think about the past, but I think the danger you're pointing towards is the possibility of the present will deform the past, right? And yes. so, yes. you know, I do think that um, when we're writing about historical material, you know, I often think about that material, but I was just thinking about this actually in, in the connection to um, uh, to your book, The Archivist's Story. I was just uh, thinking about questions of revision. I was talking a little bit about Babel and uh, thinking back to the novel. Um, you know, I do tend to think that we, uh, in historical fiction, are in the process of revising history in certain ways, right? And yet we're also very conscious that the idea of um, revisionist history is a very problematic one in many ways and does feel like it speaks into that distorting space. Um, the difference maybe, or the distinction I might make, is that if it's couched as fiction, there's a way in which I think about um, historical fiction as a kind of thought experiment, a kind of what if. Um, and also, it's also inevitably true that our historical fiction is read also by our contemporaries or by future readers um, who are also bringing their own lens, their own contemporary lens to the space of the past. Um, in a strange way, I think that can be advantageous to us. To us. And I think there are writers, um, I'm not sure I get into this quite as much, but the writers I admire greatly, who I think are playing with that idea. So I think about um, uh, Colin McCann and Let the Great World Spin, and I think that's a novel set notionally, I think it's 73 or 74, uh, when Philippe Petit is taking that walk on the tightrope between the two uh, towers of the World Trade Center. Um, But it's also a post 9-11 novel. It invites us as contemporary readers to think about the absence of those towers. And, and literally, as we're watching a man walk on a wire through the air between those two towers to think in really charged and very powerful ways about people falling and jumping from those towers on 9-11. Um, but he's inviting us as contemporary readers um, to understand that moment in ways that are different than the actual protagonists of the novel in that particular moment in the narrative. Um, and I think that's really interesting to me, actually. I think that uh, that's an honest way of thinking about the way the present circumstances, the destruction of those ch- towers, changes and charges up the way we think about the past in various ways. And, you know, I think about McCann thinking about that. I mean, I think about 9-11 in general being a moment where I think so many writers felt as though there was a line drawn in history, a kind of before and after point. Um, you know, I think this moment with COVID is in that space as well, in some ways as well. Um, and it's a question of how do we respond to that? But I think readers are also engaged in that sense of the past changing. Our relationship to the um, uh, the, the, the flu pandemic of 1917 is different now uh, than it was six months ago, right? I think the, we, the way our culture thinks about that moment is different now than it was, um, even in our relatively recent past. So there's always that kind of moving frame, um, and novelists are prone to it as, as much as readers are. And that speaks to the, I guess, the the role of uh, imagination, the author's imagination. When we're writing about the past, there's a a very famous uh, opening line from a novel by L.P. Priestley. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. I think it was the first line. And and he was writing in the 1950s about uh, pre-World War I, that sort of this idea of almost... And it's become a commonplace now, this idea of the garden of sort of earthly delights, which existed before World War I, a kind and thinking of a distorting uh, retrospective. Uh, I, I doubt that actually in 1913, people thought of the, their lives as a kind of garden of earthly delights. Right. And in a way, what we're thinking here, I mean, one of the reasons both of us think of ourselves or have thought of ourselves as historical novelists is because we are faced with the challenges of historical novelists, right? We have to go back and do some research. We've got to get it right. We're worried about getting it wrong. All those anxieties are doggers in those ways. Um, but one of the things I think we also discover in that process is that while we have an anxiety um, and maybe even at times an antagonism about our writerly authority 
uh, our imaginative authority versus a kind of historical factual authority, right? So we're, we're often made nervous by historians, I think, in these territories, right? Because <laughs> uh, it feels like we want to write what we know, and there are these people over there who know more than we do about this subject, right? So that's a weird space for us to occupy as writers. Um, and yet, I think some of the time, even the, the factual material, even the historical material, even the material that historians rely upon, um, we begin to think uh, as being maybe not entirely reliable or not the whole story, right? Um, I know you must have thought about this in regard to the mystery around Babel, his ultimate fate, um, the absence or the, the, ab- the, the going missing of his manuscripts, you know, that are central to one of the things you're thinking about in your novel. Um, and when I've often written about the past, I'm interested in those gaps in the history. Um, but even also potentially those ways in which the historical record, um, it may be all that we have, but it may not all in itself be very reliable. So when I think about the fortunes, for instance, uh, the first section of that book is based on a notionally real uh, Chinese uh, figure of the era of the building of the transcontinental. He's notionally a manservant, a valet to Charles Crocker, one of the big four who helped build the railroad. And it's supposed to have inspired Crocker to think that he could hire, um, you know, Chinese and, you know, to build his railroad. You know, Crocker gets a slightly liberal past because the prevailing racial stereotype was the Chinese were too weak to engage in that kind of backbreaking physical labor. You know, Crocker looks at Ah Ling and goes, he's strong. I bet they could all do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I get that only, and Ling is only essentially a footnoted figure in the histories because I'm reading biographies, which are essentially hagiographies of Crocker that credit him as a kind of capitalist baron with this great insight. So Ling is just an object in that space. But Ling's own story doesn't exist. Um, these biographies of Crocker are themselves, uh, while they're historical documents in certain ways, um, uh, they lean into the idea of Crocker as a capitalist hero in some ways as well. Um, there's clearly a story that lies beneath that historical record. Um, it's not accessible to me factually, because I'm not sure it's accessible to anybody factually. Ling has not ref- left a record of his own, um, but there does feel at least some opportunity to imagine and posit a, a fictional counter-narrative to that history that is in itself perhaps open to some... Uh, questioning about its own biases, its own reflection upon reality. And it's interesting, you speak about the limits of, even among historians, one of the first people I spoke to was a historian who wrote a book uh, uh, about the work of historians from the perspective of a a kind of training guide, in, in, in a way, for historians, how we go into archives, uh, the sources that we examine, and one of the chapters in his book, uh, his name is John Tosh, and his book is called The Pursuit of History, which I was most interested in was the limits of history. And you speak to that exactly. Uh, the archives themselves have limitations. Who kept the records? Who was the one that was keeping the records? And, and usually those records, uh, we're talking about official archives, are the state themselves, which does have a distorting necessarily uh, or possibly a distorting effect upon our perspective of history. A lot of documents were by power or by the forces of power in order to sustain their power. And one finds that particularly true when you investigate the archives of the Soviet Union or the Nazi regime. Uh, These are archives which were part of the state and were actually the voice of the state. And voices like Ling's uh, would have been lost, would have been considered uh, not particularly important. So it, it is interesting. I, I, it is something that I do think about quite a bit, the limitations of history, the distorting effect of our looking back upon history from the present. Um, historians even have a term called presentism, which is this way that the, our present concerns can distort our understanding, even when we sort of read into the actual archives. It's something that one has to be wary of. And I think as novelists, we kind of have to be wary of it too, don't you think? 
I do. Um, you know, presentism is, is a great way of thinking about that. The, the term that I tend to think of in this context is Susan Sontag's idea that I think McCann's narrative is a good example of. Um, she talks about posthumous irony, the way that the reader brings to bear knowledge that the characters in that particular moment can't share or can't have access to in various ways. Um, it's kind of like a judo move. Is it a is that a flaw? Is it a challenge or is it an opportunity? And sometimes I think it is an opportunity. But that would also posit the idea that historical fiction is maybe less about its notional temporal setting than it is in some ways about the present moment, right? Or that the, it's the dialogue between those two spaces that is in fact the subject rather than just the period of the past in some sense, that the, the historical novel is about the past and the present simultaneously in an interesting way. Yes. Um, I'm really interested, though, in that, and I kind of admire you, too, um, that talking to historians, I have to admit, I've always quailed slightly at that possibility, right, that fear of their authority. I did, um, years ago, accept an opportunity to go and talk on a panel of um, historical novelists at a, a, a convention of historians, um, and did so with some trepidation, that feeling of putting your head in the lion's mouth. But I, was, I must admit, I was very relieved, because I think historians, um, maybe in some ways, uh, separate to or distinct from the reading public, understand a line between uh, historical fiction, what we do, and what they do as sort of carefully researched history in certain ways. Um, although one of them also clearly suggested that historians rather envy the freedom that we have. I think the, the historian described himself saying, he said that all historians um, were frustrated historical novelists. Um, you know, I, mean, I think my comeback line is actually all, that all writers are also frustrated novelists, ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I, but I, it felt like a kind of license in a way. Um, that my anxiety is about the blurring of the line. Uh, the historians were basically saying, we know where the line is. Um, and it made me feel like I was allowed to blur the line because I wasn't therefore going to infringe upon a space that was also being um, carefully, thoughtfully protected by historians who are thinking about that, that territory. Uh, it feels like they're the gatekeepers of that, but that I have some room, some latitude to think about those things. Um, the other thing that occurred to me as you were just talking is, um, you, I think you're also leaning into really interestingly that, that, that way in which for me, different historical subjects pose different challenges as well, right? So, you know, I mentioned that Ling's narrative is not existent, right? So he's only a footnote, um, and there's nothing there about him. And that both presented for me as a writer great freedom. I could make him up whole cloth in various ways. And also uh, that anxiety of there's nothing I can lean on, right? So sometimes we go to the archive, we do the research. Um, when we're stuck, I'm going to go back and find out more about this person so I can lean heavily on that. Um, and in the context of the fortunes, you know, the second section, because it's about Anna Mae Wong, who's a real figure, a very famous, uh, you know, first Chinese-American movie star, there's tons of material. And, you know, the other side of that pendulum from Ah Ling, where there's nothing known about him as an anime, there's almost too much known about it. How do you write about it without falsifying some part of the record? Um, but it, it made me think about the archive. The archive there is less um, official in a kind of governmental sense, um, but it has a kind of official seal of the prevailing tropes and norms of that cultural moment. Um, so obviously she's growing up in an era and is on the screen in the era of yellow face and um, anti-miscegenation laws. And so there are interviews with us, which is part of the factual record, in which she will say things like, the, uh, the only love uh, that can exist is between people of the same race, basically. Um, so she's, but she's essentially parroting uh, and giving back to an interviewer in a celebrity magazine of some kind, the prevailing cultural and legal norm, and the professional norm as well. Actually, she's not allowed uh, on screen to kiss somebody of a different race, essentially, either. Um, and yet we know from her life experience that she had many affairs, many with white actors and directors. Um, and so there's a gap there between the official public record um, in this case, enshrined in sort of celebrity magazines and interviews, and the lived experience, I think, in certain ways. And that was actually very freeing to me as well, because even though there's a great trove of um, interviews with her, statements by her, she's a very much in the public eye in various ways, so that archive is very full. Um, it made me think that that archive is, is not reliable or is 
shaped by and tainted by its time. So that feels like it's just the cultural archive, right? There's not quite a, uh, a centralized figure, as we might imagine, a totalitarian regime that's editing that. But there is a kind of weird cultural totalitarianism that's shaping that space and that she is um, party to in some ways as well, party to and prisoner of, I think. I, I began to essentially think of her, or, or the interviews I was reading with her, as akin to the interviews we might read even today by any celebrity. I, I kept thinking of Angelina Jolie, actually, at the day when I was writing the book. Um, you know, uh, the gossip columns are full of her relationship with Brad Pitt or whatever it might be. Um, there are going to be statements by her and friends and him and all those kind of things out there for, for public consumption. Um, and none of them probably approach the actual truth of a relationship. Um, and how complicated is that just at the level of relationships, let alone at the level of a kind of intersection of relationships and politics and culture um, and professional norms in a moment like anime Wong. And it, it, hearing you speak, it's interesting there's this idea of the, the, the historical record, what we know for sure, almost as a, I'm thinking of it almost as a kind of scaffolding, but we have those gaps in the scaffolding. We have those places where the scaffolding doesn't cover, and that's where the imagination slips in. And you speak of that as a kind of liberating. Those are the places which are for us, for writers, liberating. Because I do find myself going back to the archives as you say, trying to find out as much as I can about a particular subject, maybe perhaps thinking that it will somehow set me free. And in fact, it does the opposite. It creates, uh, the more I know about a subject, it kind of at times can create a kind of straitjacketing effect. And it is, it's interesting to hear you talk about how the imagination fills those spaces where we don't know. We don't know what, uh, Anime Wong was thinking. We don't know. We can suspect when she was talking about not kissing uh, actors, white actors, we can suspect irony. And uh, in, in, in from what little I know of her, but certainly from what I read in your uh, novella or your story about her, um, irony is there. She was certainly aware of uh, the irony of what she was saying. Um, but it's interesting to think that the the gaps in our historical knowledge is where we as fiction writers can slip in. Yeah, it feels like a really um, interesting double-edged sword, right? There's a kind of dialectical relationship. It, it, you know, it goes back to the way, um, and I'm sure you've done this as well, um, when we're talking sometimes to other writers or to students who are thinking about writing historical fiction, you know, we lean back a little into that idea of... Um, you know, write what you know. And when we get into that space with historical fiction, partly we're worried about we don't know enough because it's not drawn directly from our own experience, perhaps. So we feel like we should go and know it and go and do all the research. And there can be, I think, embedded in that write what you know notion, um, but especially maybe for historical fiction writers, a kind of before and after idea, right? That we, before we know it all, we go and research it, we do all that kind of stuff. And then after we write it, right? Yeah. Uh, and... You know, I, I'm sure you know this uh, from researching, uh, you know, Soviet history. I certainly felt this when I was reading into World War II. Um, you can't know it all. There's just so much history. There are new books, new research um, being published every week on these subjects. So there's no possible way to arrive at a kind of mastery of those kind of spaces that are so complex, so vast in many ways. Um, so it feels as though I do some research in a way, I do enough research to fire my imagination and then follow that imaginative line until, of course, this inevitably happens from time to time, we get stuck. We run into some roadblock. And there's a moment where our doubt about our authority maybe overcomes us or simply a space that I can't imagine that space because I just don't know enough to do it. And then that sends me back sometimes to the archive, to the research, the biographies, whatever it might be. And I'll read into them again until I'm uh, fired up again, charged up again, so the imagination is relit. And then I go back to the book, work my way through that space. And so there's this weird, not so much a before and after, but a constant sort of back and forth, a bouncing around between those two spaces. Um, and I find, I actually find that fairly productive, but it took me a long time to recognize that that was, at least for me, the way that um, served me best as a working model. That uh, model you speak of, that sounds so familiar to me because it's almost when when we're writing about something, whether it's a World War II, 
uh, or the transcontinental railroad as you do and uh, the fortunes. It's almost like I feel like as though, or I'm writing about the archives of uh, Soviet Union in, in the 1930s. It's almost feels like going to graduate school or something. Like I'm t- I'm getting a master's degree and and I'm going to get a master's degree in in Stalinist history, or I have to get a master's degree in World War II. There's so much that I do not know, and the more one learns the more you realize how little you know and it's uh, aspect of it right um, yes as we try to gain some authority over the subject the more research we do in that regard reminds us in fact of the complete limitations of that authority it's absolutely true um and it seems as though this this questioning one's own authority to write about a particular subject it's not something that you a question that you answer once and then you write your book it's, it's a question that rises continually as you write. Yeah, I, I feel that that is an ongoing question. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned I'd worked on some short stories that have historical subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I do think there's some interesting things we might talk about, about the, the way those two forms maybe address um, historical material. But it certainly felt that in, as a technical challenge within the context of a short story that might be, you know, 15 or 20 pages, I only had to work once to persuade my reader of, and maybe even persuade myself, of that temporal setting. Um, if you can persuade them within the first page or two, if they're on board with you, then probably they're going to stick around with you for the next 15 or 20 pages. But in the context of writing a historical novel, um, it feels as though I'm constantly having to both persuade the reader and myself every 50 pages or so. Yeah, yet they really do know what I'm talking about, or there's, there's some veracity to this, partly because it's a bigger world that you're building. And, you know, I might be able to, for a short story, detail a particular drawing room at a particular moment in time. And all I need to do is figure out what that drawing room looks like, maybe, and maybe how the people in that room of that class might speak. Yeah. But if we're writing a historical novel, we tend to have to range around a little bit further, meet more characters, move to more settings, have to constantly reinvent what that new setting, even though it's of the same period, what it might look like in that space. So there's just more work to be done, I think, in various ways. So it does feel as though um, the sheer scope of the historical novel uh, raises more doubts, m- demands new answers, even as we work through the same space notion. It does seem to me to be uh, quite a daunting prospect to write about. Uh, I, I think writing uh, fiction is a daunting prospect to begin with, whether one is writing about your own life uh, in contemporary times or writing about World War II. It, it seems to be profoundly more daunting when you're writing about the historical past or, or even writing about a, a kind of place, a world that is so much different than our own world. Um, because we have to juggle all the balls that are in the air when we write fiction, knowing characters uh, in scene, knowing what they're thinking, just writing, just writing is difficult enough. And then we have to see the world through the character's eyes as they might've seen the world. And in your case of your novel, the Welsh girl, what was it like to be a young woman in you know, Wales in, ni- in the 1940s during war. Right, so that's, that's the crucial thing, right? We can get all the physical detail, we can get the set dressing down, we can even know the facts. But for the fiction, um, we're also in some ways trying to enter into the point of view and therefore the psychology of the people of that moment and of that era. And of course, in The Welsh Girl, you know, it's uh, the stepping stones are both this is somebody of a different era, a different culture, speaking much of the time a different language from me because she's speaking in Welsh in, in the sequences in the book, um, and somebody who's of a different gender than me as well. So there are a number of different steps built into that territory that are challenging for me. Um, I mean, I think I was lucky in some small ways. Um, I was thinking a little bit about family members. I was thinking about the familiarity I have with the physical landscape there to some degree um, and sort of projecting people I knew, uh, you know, grandmother, my father, making them younger, but also projecting them into that territory in some way. So it felt as though I could close some of that gap. Um, I'm not sure that that's true 
in as much as it was it enabled me to persuade myself that I could make those steps in some ways. Um, what I what I noticed though, and what I what I have struggled with a little bit is that I think that um, I have maybe falsely a kind of um, a sense, a quasi-confidence that I can project myself into the psychological space um, of someone uh, like a young woman in the 1930s in Wales. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm doing it convincingly. I'm not saying that I, um, uh, you know, that confidence is well-founded, but I do nonetheless feel that I can do that. Um, that person feels modern psychologically to me. When I was writing of uh, Ling in the 1860s and 70s, somebody who's coming uh, from China and arriving in the US in that period, I realized that I was bumping up against a kind of, or what felt to me is in the writing of it, like a kind of psychological event horizon that I wasn't convinced or persuaded or wasn't certain, didn't have the same confidence that I could occupy that character, uh, that character's psychology as easily or as comfortably. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. I mean, it feels as though there's, a, there's some kind of tipping point. It might be language, it might be culture. You know, I'm half Chinese but I'm by blood, but I'm much less than half Chinese culturally, so there's, there's probably some barrier in that space that I'm encountering. Um, maybe it's the idea that, um, you know, again, in, in, in some uh, probably facile way, I think of a kind of post-Freudian psychology as being one that I'm familiar with and a pre-Freudian one as somehow a little less accessible to me in various ways. Um, but it took me a while, and it was more of a struggle to think my way into Ling. And in fact, in those regards, um, the absence of historical record for him allowed me to construct him as somebody who felt uh, deliberately felt closer to me. I made him meet Drake's. Um, and so I was able to draw closer to him in that way because it felt as though it connected a little bit more with the space that I was familiar with and I was coming from. But that felt a little bit like a um, an effort to draw him close to me rather than an ease of myself being able to draw close to him. Um, and the fact that, you know, the there there is a little uncertain gave me a little bit more license in those regards. Was Ling always a, uh, a character, was he always mixed race? Or was this something that came, sort of occurred to you as you were writing? And as you say, it was a, almost a psychological a technique for you to move closer to him. Was, was he always Chinese, uh, mixed race? Yeah, there's no evidence in the record that he was. And I think, in fact, that, that would be a less likely outcome. And in many ways, I thought about him as initially being... Um, you know, initially as being typical, right? The, the notion of Crocker looking at him and going, oh, they're all as strong as this guy, um, is a way of thinking about Ling as typical, as representative, as almost generic from through Crocker's eyes. Um, and I was originally drawn to his narrative because of that odd way in which he serves as a kind of gateway figure. I sometimes think about him um, in terms of Chinese immigration as sort of Asian zero in a strange way. Not that there hadn't been Chinese who'd come to the US uh, for the gold rush, um, but many of those men stayed because they were able to be employed on the railroad, and so Ling is a threshold figure in those regards for them. And indeed, many more Chinese came to the US to work on the railroad. So there's a way in which... Um, the Chinese-American community, as it was formed in that period, owes an awful lot to him and to the model that he represents. He's also our sort of first, um, and of course I mean this ironically, our first model minority in a strange way in those regards as well. Um, but it also became clear to me that in his historical positioning, as somebody who uh, works within the household of a very wealthy uh, Westerner, a white man, um, that he's caught a little bit between these two worlds. So he's both Chinese, but in some ways he's also Westernized in that space as well, more so than the men who are working on the railroad or even on the men who are working in the gold fields. Um, so in a way, thematically, that sense of him having a foot in two camps um, meant that the choice of making him mixed race felt as though it was actually also in keeping with the way that, or the role that I was interested in exploring for him, right? So Crocker sees him as purely representational. I was interested in what it felt like to be the individual burdened with that idea of being a representative. 
right? Um, and so that idea of making him mixed race felt as though it lent into that space in various ways. So it felt right for the book, but certainly, as I say, uh, psychologically an aid to me to imagine my way into that place. And you had, you had pictured him in this way before you began to write, or was this a I shift? Know, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's true. I think I'd, I've been really drawn and you know, learning a little bit about him or just his existence was a real seed point for the project. Um, he Once I learned about him, I knew I was going to write about him and he was going to be central in some important ways. It felt as though there's the individual at the turning point of history, right? So that's always a, an attractive space for us to think about uh, as historical novelists. Um, so I'd probably for some years, even before the writing, had him in mind as a protagonist or some kind of central figure um, without knowing very much about him. I think I put the book off for a little while, in fact. Um, and then probably even when I began writing it, I didn't know very much about him. I knew his relationship to Crocker. I had some of those scenes in mind. But it took me a while as I was delving into his backstory to begin to figure out a kind of fictional history for him that would give me some purchase upon him, I think. When you're talking about research earlier. You say you there, research is almost a dialogue that that you have. It's, it's the research before, research during. Do you discover things even after? you write something, and I don't mean it's after it's published, but I mean perhaps several drafts in, you discover things that uh, affect your understanding. This is the kind of uh, magical quality to it, right? Um, that we steep ourselves in the research and then we see a connection between a couple of things we've learned. Um, and I'm not going to suggest that that connection the potential of that connection escapes the, the historical researchers that I'm sort of learning from and borrowing from. Um, but because it's a little speculative, they may not be allowed to go there because it, it doesn't feel as though they can absolutely join those two dots together, right? So I, I'm thinking a little bit about, um, well, a couple of things in regard to Anna May that seems really interesting to me. Um, a lot of the biographies of her speak to the fact that she was working on Broadway when her mother passed away and chose not to return to California to go to the funeral. She stayed on Broadway. And that seems like a striking detail. Um, it is often a, you know, given as a kind of psychological spin that it sort of you know, related to a kind of rift between her and her father, her and her family, which makes a certain kind of sense to me as well. And it also feels cold-blooded. It feels ambitious, right? It feels like I'm going to stay on Broadway, not going to go back to the family. Um, so there's lots of ways we might unearth that moment. Um, the biographies don't go into a lot of detail about that, but it's a striking detail that, that came up. So I was really interested in the motivations of that. Um, but elsewhere in, um, in the research, it became clear that her younger sister, also an actress, often served as an understudy for her. I think this is true in, in certainly in movies. And I, I, off the top of my head, I wasn't able to go back and research, refer to my notes because they're somewhere buried in the basement right now. Um, it's probable that I concluded that her younger sister was her understudy on Broadway as well. Um, and I think that makes sense because I think anime probably would not have wanted to have a yellow face understudy. So that, that seems plausible in the moment. Um, but it also means that... Um, if both sisters had returned to the funeral, the play would have gone dark, right? Anime couldn't go because if she had, her sister would have assumed the role. So one of the sisters goes, the other one stays to play the role. And it felt as though the connection of these couple of data points, right? There's a data point that says anime didn't go to her mother's funeral and a data point that says her sister was her understudy on Broadway. Um, those two things go together to suggest there's a reason a more complicated reason why she doesn't go back to the funeral. Now, historians don't, don't draw that inference because I don't think there's necessarily a proof. There's not a letter where she says, I can't do this because I don't want the show to go dark. Um, but it feels as though there's a territory there um, that I, as a, fiction, as a writer of historical fiction, I can join those dots just a little bit, right? Um, the same, I think, goes a little bit for that space of... Uh, we know she never married. We know she had many affairs um, with white directors and white co-stars. Um, but I think there's a kind of irony there or a connection there, and I lean into this a little bit in the context of the book, that says that in an era 
where there were anti-miscegenation laws still in effect in California. Um, the fact that she can't marry uh, a white, can't marry these lovers, also from their point of view, I suspect, makes her the perfect mistress. She's the mistress who can't say, leave your wife for me, because it's not even on the table. It's not a possibility, right? So we think of these things as choice. Um, but I think in some ways they're also shaped by the socio-political space that she occupies, and indeed the socio-political space that her lovers occupy in certain ways as well. And again, that connection is not one made by the history books, because I think it's hard to you know, penetrate the psychology of not just Anna Mae, but maybe even her lovers in this space. But it does feel like a logical inference from these historical data points. And I'm really interested in those moments which feel as we're working into those spaces as writers, very akin to moments of inspiration, right? It's as if the material is providing us or allowing us or drawing us into an insightful moment that I think does really come close to those moments of inspiration. So I, I'm always excited by those when I can discover them in the writing of a piece. And that, to me, has is, is always been one of the, uh, this idea of the, the finding of the inspiration or finding those connections, these human, this, this, these moments, small epiphanies, large epiphanies, when it, it's a dialogue between the creative work that you do or we do, uh, one does, uh, and the historical research or the reading you're doing. And it, it might not even be historical. I mean, you, one could be writing about physics, science, any number of subjects, but there are these fascinating connections that occur. And I think what one thing that the historian, I mean, that the historian, the fiction writer does, and I saw, I, I, I felt that when I was rereading um, the uh, Celestial Railroad, is it takes a kind of tragedy, which might fly past us. And, and the enormity of the tragedy, uh, if we were reading a, a book about the history of Chinese immigrants to America and the turn of the century, the tragic uh, circumstances of their lives. We might miss that, but the story of one, or in, in the case of your uh, story, it's actually the story of little sister and Ling at the end of that uh, marvelous story. They're together. They've seen how circumstances have kind of um, warped their lives, uh, kept them apart and uh, shape their lives in a way that is tragic. That's one thing it seems that history, um, fiction writers can do for us is highlight the individual tragedy. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. It's one of the, one of the pleasures, also one of the challenges, right? It's why, why the, the, the trying to grapple with the psychology of distant characters to get under their skin, to get into their points of view. All of these things are important and valuable to us because it's also a way of um, recapturing what it, what it felt like, not just what it means in the, in the scope of things, not what the facts are, but getting beneath the surface of the facts to the emotional substrata that's there, which, of course, is the human thing, right? Um, we tend to think of, and I think history does this, and even photographs of the era when I think about you know, Chinese working on the railroad um, you know, there are some great photographs, but there are often photos of lots of men, right? And I think even in the era of that period, um, it's somewhat challenging and charged language. There's descriptions of the Chinese working on the Sierra Nevadas in the Lee of the Mountains. They look like ants compared to that space. But there's that sense of the facelessness of this mass. Um, that's also a charged choice. Um, and the choice we're trying to make is often to look into the individual experience of that moment. So we're trying to pluck somebody out of that crowd and think about that individual. I just have a, a last question, I guess, or this notion of all, we're, we've been spending so much time talking about all the research that we do. What are, what are your thoughts about that research showing in the final product? Oh, do, you, yeah. do you know what I mean? Because we have read historical novels. I've read historical novels, which seem to want to trot out the fact that they've done research, or at least we, we find a lot of famous historical characters appearing um, for better or worse. And uh, it almost feels like a set drama or a costume drama in a way. And, and how do you avoid sort of that trap 
of the research kind of showing? Oh, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that question because I think I occasionally fall into that trap. It, it's a point of view issue as well, right? We were talking about this a little bit earlier on. Um, so um, back in the day, uh, now quite a bit back in the day, when I was picked for that grant of Best of Young British Novelists thing, uh, I gave them a passage uh, for that issue from uh, The Welsh Girl. Um, and it's fairly early on. There's a moment where she's turning on the radio. I think they're listening to the D-Day landings. And um, she reaches up and turns on the radio, and she turns on the Bakelite knob of the radio. And uh, I think unwittingly, uh, Ian Jack, the editor of Grant, the editor of my books at the time in Britain, um, he mentioned in the introduction to that, that issue that... Um, uh, when he and the other judges had been talking their way through historical fiction, uh, they, they had identified something that they described as the Bakerlite knob problem. And I was somewhat mortified to think, you know, that, that's me, that's my problem, apparently, even though you picked me. So it felt like, hey, good news, bad news in that space. Um, and I think Hilary Mantel is one of the judges, one of the greatest historical novelists oh, around. Oh, my. Mortifying, right? Um, and so what they're saying is that, of course, um, Somebody reaching for a radio in 1940 does not think that knob is made of Bakelite because, of course, it's just the knob on the radio anymore than I think he turned on the plastic knob of the radio today, right? Um, I mean, I could, I could make some excuses about the point of view zooming in and maybe we weren't quite in her point of view yet, but they would mostly be excuses. So I, I, I sympathize with and I illustrate maybe some of those problems. And that is... That's the set dresser's problem, right? That's, you know, the BBC costume drama version of this problem is that we're attending to um, all the appropriate materials and stitching and the buttons of the costume. Um, and that, I think, is also why it's so important to try and penetrate that psychological space so that we're seeing this outwards through the eyes of the character. Um, but it is a challenge, and we do fall prey to it at various points along the way as well. I mean, the antidote for me possibly... And I, I try and offer this up to my students as well. There's one we started off by talking about, which is that um, that sense of the present informing the past, right? That feeling that my fealty is not just to the past, but maybe also to the present. And therefore, maybe there's, maybe it's not all that, maybe not 100% important that I get the buttons right. Right, maybe that's the thing to think about. Whether it's the switch or the buttons on the on a, on a, on a great coat or whatever it might be, um, that there's something more that we're in service to than those things. Because if we get too caught up in that space, we really want to keep persuading people of that along the way. I think you know, we get. There's also a way I think for readers that if we get one of those details right, they will go with us for lots of other details. Right. It's the um, it's that, you know, it goes back to that notion that write what you know could just be rephrased as write what you know just a little bit more about than the reader. Right. If I'm writing about Wales in 1930 and I know 10 things about it, but my reader knows one thing about it. To all intents and purposes, they can't call my bluff because I'm going to write about another hundred things, but they don't know which of the ten things are true and which of the ninety ones are ones that I've imagined or made up. Right? They're plausible. It's like a poker game; you can't call my bluff. Um, if I know one thing about a subject and you know zero, to all intents and purposes, I'm infinitely more knowledgeable than you are. Um, and that's a trick. It's a fiction writer's device. Um, but sometimes we have to embrace that power and embrace that trickiness um, and not, I mean, I, I feel as though historians uh, as moral and ethical people are sort of up here, right? And I feel that I as a historical fiction writer am somewhere down here. Uh, but I also feel that there's some value in embracing that. And so occasionally I think about, and, and I try and discuss occasionally with students, works that I think really productively and radically and very deliberately abandon any kind of effort at historical um, veracity. So I often use the example of Wells Tower's story, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned, which is notionally a narrative about Vikings, but told in a vernacular that feels 
modern, I sometimes compare it to the way frat boys talk, yes. in the way that we might think about even veterans of our military speaking, which I think does feel like a really interesting echo. So there's a way there, it, might, it reminds me, in fact, of, um, and I think both of us have probably thought about this too in a strange way, um, it reminds me of translation, right? Um, that we're translating, uh, sometimes with a contemporary writer, um, a vernacular that might be uh, foreign, sometimes into a space that's a little bit more familiar because we're trying to capture something about that voice. Um, but I think we're also making an act of translation of the past to the present in some ways. So the fact that Wells Towers Vikings sound a little like frat boys, you know, or maybe a little like veterans um, or sailors on shore leave or whatever it might be, um, the actual language they're using feels uh, incongruous, uh, but maybe it's capturing a truth about who they are. Maybe they are closer to sailors on shore leave um, than if they spoke, you know, with some faux British accent that felt like as though it was itself a kind of um, weird Hollywood-inspired simulacrum of what the past sounded like to us in some ways, right? So I'm, I'm interested in that. I was just talking to a, a student who's, um, you know, writing a narrative set in Pompeii and, you know, she has some teenage characters in it. They sound a little like contemporary teenagers. It's a little jarring to me, but there's also an argument to suggest that there's some truth in that. There's probably some middle ground between these two spaces. But yeah, I don't want them to sound um, the way I think Romans in all movies we say we, we encounter sound, which is to sound like British people. British, yeah. <laughs> For some reason, British became the trope or the the idea, at least in Hollywood. And, and it's funny, British became... Uh, British accents became the Hollywood California idea of what Romans right. sounded like. And if you want, if you want a, a, a Roman, a good Roman, you need a British actor. So even the conventions of realism are just conventions, right? They're not real. We just somehow have, um, they become a little bit more transparent to us over time because there's a historical trajectory, even to that kind of uh, stereotyping or that kind of convention. Um, but they're still bullshit, right? <laughs> uh, yes. And yet, somehow, if that Roman doesn't sound British. We go, that's not real. But in fact, we were actually saying that's not conventional, which is a different space to engage in. So there's, it just feels like a really interesting territory to play in. Uh, and I'm occasionally, yes. I like to remind myself, I mean, I don't go as far as, you know, Tower or some of these other instances, but I like to remind myself and remind students of those possibilities, because I think it emboldens us to take a few more chances along the way. Well, Peter, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me. I really appreciate your time. It's uh, been wonderful well, catching up. I could do this all day, and I feel like I really want to pick your brains more about your challenges and experiences in this regard as well. But I really appreciate the opportunity to have a, a fun conversation. My thanks to Peter Ho Davies. It was a real honor and a lot of fun getting a chance to talk to him. I hope you'll check out his work. It's brilliant stuff. I'm Travis Holland, and you've been listening to Footnotes to a Novel. Take care. <laughs>